Hi, this is Kevin Can with episode 8 of Boston Strongcast. On this episode, I have with me Dr. Mike Amato. Hi, Mike. How's it going? You want to tell us a little bit about your uh, background and uh, what you do for a living? Sure, thank you. Um, like the little doctor, doctor, doctor title there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, <laughs> it makes you sound legit. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm a physical therapist. I've been working in the Boston area for a few years now. Um, and right now I work over at Joint Ventures Physical Therapy and Fitness. It's over at the Prudential Center. So if you want to shop, take a stop on by, <laughs> get a little PT. All right, Mike. So we're, we're going to get right into it here. So one of the first things. So what we're going to kind of cover is um, what type of like when mobility exercises are appropriate, what tools to use and what current research kind of says about movement dysfunction, injury and performance, because I think this is a big topic. And I uh, in a previous podcast talked about the scientific principles of strength training mm -hmm. and the law of specificity applies even in, in these settings here. So we're going to kind of try to tie everything together to make your training uh, a little bit more geared towards putting your best performance on the platform. So first things first, we're gonna discuss movement dysfunction. Like this is a big term that uh, mm. has been tossed around the fitness field for quite a while. So Mike, can you kind of go over the current science and how movement uh, dysfunction affects injury risk? Yeah, so definitely a nice loaded topic to start the conversation. <laughs> um, something that I've been more cognizant of lately is definitely getting into like terminology so i think this is where we can really like dive into like semantics and terminology so when it comes down to like movement dysfunction like what are we actually talking about like the actual word dysfunction and i think if you like look it up look into it try to find the research on it you'll f quickly figure out it's kind of a made-up term i think <laughs> um and so from like the fitness side of things, um, if you're thinking about the word function, it's, it's specific to the task you want to do, right? So the function of like a power lifter would be different than the function of like your field athlete, than the function of your, you know, stay at home mom or, you know, working anybody, you know? So I think when we to throw, around, throw around these terms as function, we kind of get stuck in this kind of labeling uh, scenario where we're going based on kind of what we think is aesthetic and kind of what we know as a norm maybe from taught to us by somebody else. So like one of the things I see with the whole like movement dysfunction term is like we're throwing the word dysfunction on something when we've never even labeled what appropriate movement is. Yes. And I don't know if we know what appropriate movement is. You know, right. I, I think that one of the cool things about being a human and the human body is that we're very adaptable. So a lot of times I explain to my patients, and this is more on the pain and rehab side of things, is that um, we just prepare our bodies for whatever we want to prepare them for, and that they can be adapted and prepared for what, what we want to do, but it's hard to like label things black and white as like, this is good, this is bad, and things catch on and kind of like, you know, gain momentum and become like norms in society, but there are few that it's like it's not challenged and it's not actually deeply researched to see if these things are true um so one one of the things that you know i think often in any field whether it's the coaches physical therapists or chiropractors yeah. is there's a misconception that poor posture and if you don't abide by these made-up movement parameters that it's going to lead to injury risk exactly um can you discuss that a little bit of how yeah. and what maybe might be causing um, 
their experiences, their pain experiences. Yeah, so I mean, if you if you dive into the current research, you'll find that either posture screening or movement screening has has poor efficacy, poor validity. So like, they'll run the FMS through a bunch of different populations, and it'll come back with all the parameters, and they'll come back with the cutoff scores, and then you'll find that the people who are below the cutoff score or over the cutoff score aren't at any more risk of injury. And then you can even apply that to posture. Like there's plenty of articles that show that scapular dyskinesis doesn't have a great correlation to shoulder pain. Um, forward head posture doesn't have a great correlation to neck pain. So when we start dissecting these things and we find out that there actually isn't like good evidence for it, then the person in front of us, how do we tell them why they're in pain? Because they want an answer, right? right? And the, your athlete in the gym they want an answer, and I think that's where this comes from. I think everyone's well-intended, and they want to help people, and so it's easy to see something and kind of grasp onto it, but the, the, true nature of it, the true nature of it is that pain and function and movement is very complex, and what we need to do is, instead of trying to really make it more complex than it actually is, because it's already complex, is try to simplify it for the person. And... Um, try to find positions and movements that take away the threat and take away that level of that pain experience and put them into like a successful environment and situation. And it's kind of a broad way of speaking about it, but like easy examples, and I know you're aware of this, is like say someone has pain squatting, right? They put the bar on their back or even like they're just like picking up something, picking up their child and they have pain in their knee and they associate squatting with knee pain that's it you know they kind of link that and that'll grow and that that association will grow and they might start moving differently they might start you know developing weakness in their quads and then then that's when you see the classic person of every time they squat they have knee pain but what if you made them squat to a box or you made them maybe a, give them like a very hip dominant squat or you had them squat with assistance holding on to like a suspension trainer and all of a sudden they don't have knee pain when they do it that's very powerful for them and instead of kind of filling their head with you know oh you know you you're so knee dominant when you squat or you know you have shitty ankle dorsiflexion your knees are coming in on a single leg yeah exactly you have all this you have all this like valgus at your knee and it's putting you at risk for this injury and your patellar is tracking wrong and all these things that are well intended like i said and they probably have gotten results in the past from it but the results are probably coming from these other effects that people aren't aware of is kind of where i go towards i think one of the big things that you mentioned was if somebody has uh, a negative perception about squatting and knee pain yeah that you've got them into a mechanically similar position dealing with similar loads and similar speeds yeah to help change their perception exactly so you know i know a few years ago i used to run everybody through an fms mm-hmm. like it was basically kind of you know the fms and plus i would do a, f- a few other things and i thought it was telling me something yeah. right that like um you know perhaps what we're seeing here is if we fix these energy leaks i'm putting my hands up in quotations because that's another made-up word he is um (laughs) that if we fixed those we'd see an increase in performance and we would see a decrease in injury risk but there's actually been a meta-analysis that was done recently on the fms that showed it's the exact opposite exactly so it made me question the way i was doing things and changed the way i was doing things quite a bit and one of the things that i realized is especially like powerlifting is a biomechanically super simple sport. 
Like, we're not changing direction. We're not jumping and landing. Like, our feet are planted. The We're laying down for a third of it. Like, <laughs> like you know. Yeah, like, the, uh... <laughs> it's a pretty simple sport. And I've, uh, you know, we are treading a fine line of the amount of volume that people can tolerate before they experience pain and stuff. But altering the mechanics of the speed of the movement, I've actually started to just work backwards. So if they're having a hard time squatting, yeah, maybe we do it more. Like, they push their hips back more. We make it a little more hip-dominant. All of a sudden, they feel better, and they're still squatting. And then they don't even think about it anymore, and then they're just squatting regular. And it never bothers them again. Yeah. Um, You know, with all of this stuff said, we are kind of um, discussing how there may not be any, like, gospel of proper movement patterns. But I do think movement has... And proper movement patterns have an importance when it comes to performance in high load activities. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to discuss that a little bit, Mike? Yeah. So I think you know I don't think this gives us warrant to throw everything out. You know, you know, just take up the book and rip it up. And right. um, I think there's still a powerful element of movement and even like analyzing biomechanics to an extent. Because what at the end of the day we want people probably moving as efficiently as we can. And then at the same time, maybe giving them a little more movement options if they get stuck in a hard place. So for powerlifting, it's an easy example. It's, you know, how do we get the bar moving as vertically as possible for the squat and deadlift? And how do we get it, you know, moving in the best efficient bar pads for like a bench, depending on like the athlete's um, body shape. So you can teach that, right? And you can get them into good positions and you can make them successful at it. And that, at the end of the day, will make them use less energy uh, we'll use your quotes again, and um, and make it more powerful. So that that has a lot of power. And I think if you make someone successful at that, they're probably gonna have a like a longer career and more successful career in their sport, and they can carry that over to the rest of their life because they're not like killing themselves in the gym and squatting eight different ways every time, and you know tinkering with this, tinkering with that. If they kind of can hone in on something that's efficient, that's powerful. Right. And then, uh, yeah, and then the other thing, the other thing too, is just giving them a little more options too. Because just, um, I'll, I'll do this with some of my powerlifting patients. Is that, you know, it's a purely sagittal plane sport, right? Yep. We can't, we can't ignore that. And I'm not going to be here saying that everyone needs to be doing like. Well, would the bench press be the transverse plane? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just calling you out on the. On yeah, the sure. If you're lying down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know giving them some more movement options so they're not like you know not hesitant or they have some control over other planes of motion doesn't mean doesn't need to be uh need to be like masters at you know owning this like rotational pattern but just to have them do something else to give them a little more control and that might get them out of like a painful pattern there's there's some power in that i think yeah, no, I, I do too, and like a, a lot of times, like, and I, I, I was having this conversation, I think, actually with Danielle, who you know, mm-hmm. yesterday, like, uh, or this morning, actually, like, some of the things that we put in, so, you know, powerlifting's a sport where our shoulder blades are just kind of depressed and, and retracted and kind of stuck together the mm-hmm. whole time. Yeah. So sometimes just, like, you know, I might throw, like, some lateral raises in there, some seated dumbbell overhead press in there, something that's not going to make it hard to recover from. But it just gets the scapular just moving around and exploring different options. And yeah. It does seem to keep people, for the most part, relatively pain-free and able to train. And I think you made a great point about exploring options. So, 
you know, there are a lot of programs out there in powerlifting that literally they lean so far towards the side of specific mm-hmm. that they just train the same movement pattern every time they come into the gym. Yeah. And we can run into some some problems with that. I mean, this is what the whole argument with early specialization in sport is, is they're not exploring movement options. Um, so say you have somebody who comes in, they're, um, we'll use a powerlifter, they're experiencing some type of pain and you notice that they're not exploring options, would you give them more of like a structured warm-up where they get that stuff in or would you add other exercises and different planes of motion or kind of how would you go about addressing that issue? Yeah, I, I kind of play around with it. I kind of see like where they're coming from. So everything's individual. And I think this is like this is like the, the powerful thing for somebody who's in pain or trying to rehab or even just like you coaching them is that individualized approach and seeing them as a person. So it just depends on like what their routine's like, you know, what's going on, what else is going on in their life, you know, um, what kind of phase of training they're in, and I'll just kind of meet them where they're at. So, I mean, most people can fit a lot of these, like, maybe, like, light movements in during their warm-up. It's really easy, you know, like, I have no problem giving, like, a powerlifter, like, a bottoms-up kettlebell press as a warm-up. You know, it's not going to fatigue them, it's not going to give them soreness the next day, but, you know, it might have them move their scapula a different way, and maybe activate their shoulder muscles a little differently but at the end of the day it's gonna probably it's give them that one more movement option so they're not you know they're not not exploring it i also like doing things like at the end just tacking it on same kind of thing like you know i think a lot of times you can look at this and it's definitely the um the strength sports is that athletes don't give themselves like an off season like all other, all other sports usually have off unless you're violating rules and right. specializing too much but you know all our sports have off seasons and i think that uh that element can be very important so sometimes when i have like an injured powerlifter or injured anything i say hey cool guess what you have now have an off season you probably haven't had an off season right. <laughs> in maybe three years um at least a dedicated one so you know we can still get the main lifts in but maybe your assistance lifts look different now and then when you kind of get back into more of like a preseason mode, we can start ramping up the specificity again and keeping a little bit of stuff, but nothing crazy. I think he brings up a great point. Like what, you know, I just had a group come back from nationals and this four week block was really light. The volume was nowhere near what they were hitting before. And there was just a shitload of variation. And in some situations, there was just variation for the sake of variation. Yeah. Like just to get them out of like during a peaking block, the variation goes away and they're practicing their sport and it's heavy and it's the competition lifts and it's a lot of them and there's that you know you start to get psychologically worn down and then you know it's important to take a step back and not just continue to push it all the time like look at your annual training year and and give yourself some time to actually back off a little bit uh you had mentioned you kind of started to touch upon like other factors that would affect um them being in pain and some of them are psychosocial and nature so can you explain how in a really (laughs) simplified manner how Uh those psychosocial factors would affect their pain yeah this this will be a good warm-up because i'm doing a presentation this friday (laughs) and i'll probably have five minutes to talk about it too oh perfect Uh, (laughs) so i I think the the biggest misconception is that the psychosocial elements affect the pain and that that's where that model comes from so I, i don't i think if you went into any talk to any reasonable coach therapist, clinician, doctor, and you said, you know, you asked them, do you think psychosocial uh, factors have a play in someone's health and performance? They would absolutely say yes. But what I think is misconceived 
and I've been guilty of this in the past, is that the psychosocial factors are part of the pain. They don't like affect the pain. They like are part of the whole picture. And I think um, the hard part is to conceptualize that. And so I never like take away the powerful experience that someone's having with pain. You know, I never go to the point where I'm saying your pain is caused by your outlook on it or your pain is caused by your anxiety because that would be very um, unfair to them. So what I what I tell them is that, you know, there's all these factors and messages and elements and it comes down to your beliefs, your thoughts, your memories, um, your movement, your associations with movement, your stress, um, and it goes on and on. And all these things compete with each other and either there's two sides of it. Either you're safe or you're in danger. And when your brain thinks you're in danger, you're in pain. And that's kind of like the simple way of looking at it. And all these factors essentially feed that competition. And so if you're currently not in pain, then you're essentially safe. And if you're in pain, then your body's trying to tell you you're in danger. And that danger signal is super important um, because it's telling you to probably change something or take some course of action. It's not a good indicator of actual tissue harm. And that's like, that's like, I think the golden moment for somebody, if they can conceptualize that the pain isn't a indicator of tissue harm, we can go so far, we can go like really far with that. Um, Right. Because the perception that it is tissue harm might lead to greater pain sensitivity. Exactly. Greater fear of movement. And then that's when the movement patterns change. And then that's when we get into like the movement talk again. Right. And that's what people see. So when you're in pain and all of a sudden you have that you know, that squat pattern that looks quote unquote ugly, that probably wasn't the cause. That's just the association that's happened. And if you can reclaim that association, you can, that can be powerful for someone. Reclaim that movement pattern. Yeah. So I think one of the best ways that this was ever explained to me was fidgeting has, there's a reason why we fidget. Like we get uncomfortable in our chair and we fidget. And if we stop fidgeting, <laughs> that's when we run into problems. Yeah. Right. That's when, and like, so, you know, if, you're not exploring multiple movements and you know if you're not listening to that pain signal like you know it's kind of like there's smoke but no fire right exactly and, and the smoke's important exactly like you're not going to ignore your fire alarm right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you're also not going to maybe like call the fire department right away you're going to explore it yeah, first exactly. and, and yeah. make sure that something's not on fire yeah um now there is a difference between probably the onset of acute pain and chronic pain, correct? Yes. yes. So acute pain is something that you probably want to listen to a little bit. Yeah, if there's an actual like event or some kind of trauma. Um, I have a good example. I dropped a barbell on my foot two weeks ago. <laughs> I'm guilty of it too. <laughs> um, you know, I had immediate pain <laughs> and swelling and bruising. And I thought, I should probably get this checked out. <laughs> and while I waited for the x-ray, my foot hurt a lot. And I just kept thinking, like, all right, this is broken. I'm going to have to wear crutches and a boot. It's going to suck. I can't lift. I'm probably going to have to skip work for a week. And the pain was, like, really sharp and almost, like, numbing in that moment. And then um, got the x-ray, went back to the room, just waiting. And then the doctor comes in and goes, all right, it's not broken. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Here's here's some crutches. Here's a boot, you know. And it didn't, like, magically erase my pain, but I was like, all right, I'm a little more at ease. And right. then I just rested it, 
took care of it over the next couple of days and then it got better. And I think what you have to tell someone in acute pain is like, all right, this is real. There's some tissue damage going on, you know, some of the nerves in your body part that's injured is definitely telling you something and it's telling you like, hey, let's cool this down. But when it starts to kind of wash away, start to confront it. And I think that's where the dividing line comes between chronic and acute. And I think someone who's in acute pain needs as much pain education as someone who's in chronic pain because you want to prevent the chronic pain. You want to get them to confront their injury and uh, reclaim their movement, essentially. So you're saying confront their injury. And, like, I read a research study, and it might have been a meta-analysis, too, that showed that um, exercises that actually induce a little bit of pain were more successful at reducing chronic pain than ones that avoided it altogether. Yeah, in Um, the short term, yeah. In the short term. Mm -hmm. Um, So there weren't any long-term differences? There were not, but that's just one analysis. and. But right. it, it was interesting because it, it said that it didn't make it worse, right? which is powerful too. And I think, you know, explaining that to people sometimes, especially like where I deal with competitive athletes and there are times that things fucking hurt, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it kind of sucks and you yeah. got to kind of like step mm-hmm. back and like think for a second, like, is this something that I need to avoid training for a while? Like, um, you know, kind of one of the like underlying rules that, I have is if I see that it changes their mechanics in any way, then it's something that probably needs to be checked out. Yeah. If they can kind of suck it up and their mechanics look no different, they're not, you know, you don't see a loss of strength or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's something that will kind of continue to poke the bear. We'll keep an eye on like the tempo and the volume of stuff and kind of see what happens. Sometimes Definitely. it doesn't work out great, yeah. but the majority of time, this stuff just kind of comes and goes. Like it just kind of comes with a territory. Um, we get a lot of people who, when they do experience some type of pain like that, they love to revert to some type of mobility tool. Oh, yeah. I knew it was coming. Because, <laughs> of course, when... <laughs> we just got a hands up from Alyssa. When, when your shoulder hurts, you should take a hard lacrosse ball and jam into aggravated tissue because that makes perfect logical sense. Yeah. Um, where do these mobility tools, what do they do and what don't they do? Let's let's start there. Okay. What, what do they do and what don't they do? What they don't do is change tissue structure. We, I think we know that pretty definitively, that the tools cannot change the physiology. Um, I hear Quinn Hendock talk about this all the time and his um, his point would be if you know, if we were that malleable, then sitting in a chair all day, sitting in a chair all day would cause us to have like square butts, you know, just the pressure of us sitting on the chair would just permanently deform your glute max or putting a bar on your back would permanently deform your upper trap and you would never have tight upper traps again. Yeah. So, um, and there's some mathematical studies that show why this is impossible. It, I don't, I don't understand the math, so I'm not going to go on a limb and say, like, I truly own that, but we're pretty, de- we're pretty clear that um, it doesn't change tissue, but that doesn't take away why people feel better after they do it, and I think there's this strong perceptual change people get from it, and there's underlying expectation results, um, just the power of touch, having, having something touch and uh, implement you um and we think it modifies sensation so like by let's say an area is painful and i push on it or a ball pushes on it 
Um, you've added a new sensation of probably pain because these things never feel great. Right. You know, there's some like it's like the good pain that people always talk about, like from massage, and this good pain blocks maybe the bad pain. And now we go back. We go back to the association stuff. So now you've reconceptualized maybe your pain. You're like, oh, this lacrosse ball is doing me good. I can feel the pressure. I can feel the good pain. I get up. You've expected the result. You might kind of perceive the result, and you go on with your training. And that's pretty much the way I see it. <laughs> so basically, what they're doing is they're giving the nervous system a different input to to kind of figure out what's happening. It's kind of like when you jam your finger and you swing your arm around. Exactly. You feel it a little bit different. Exactly. Right. And I think I think it's slippery slope because then you can use that and say, all right, because now, now there's a whole group of people saying, because we know it's not mechanical, then we'll just say it's neurophysiological. But everything is neurophysiological. Right. Um, me telling you something has a neurophysiological effect on you. And we again, we know that from the brain and pain science. So it's, I think it comes down to the responsibility of education that we, PTs, coaches, clinicians, doctors, who have this knowledge, we need to be responsible in demonstrating it. I'm not saying like I'm going to go out there and I'm going to tear down every foam roller and throw away a lacrosse ball. <laughs> and I think if people use it and they have a positive experience from it, sure, you know, I'm not going to go out there and like uh, squash that for you. But I'm not going to implement it as something new for any of my like uh, patients and athletes, if, especially if they haven't done it. I'll usually ask them, like, all right, tell me what your warm-up's like. And if they don't do anything that involves that, I'm not going to – I'm never going to add it, essentially. So, I, you know, one of the things that I think with the mobility tools <laughs> and stuff is it – and like, like you said, like it changes perception and it might help them out, but I think – if they continuously do that over time, there becomes a reliance on that to change their perception instead of their strength training and proper education changing their perspective. So that's where I think you go from these really squishy foam rollers to these steel tubes that weigh 100 pounds, yep. and it becomes an addictive process almost. Yeah. And I think another piece is you know, the endorphin response you get from it. So maybe it just masks the pain and then you go and strength train, which can have a positive effect until you become relying upon it. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, it, it has negative consequences. Like for me, I used to have people do a lot of this stuff warming up to squat. So, you know, common thing, oh, my hips are tight, I can't squat to depth. Um, all right, well, go do a coach stretch and do some type of, breaking up of the quad muscle or whatever and yeah all right so their mobility would get a, a little bit better but you know what else worked even better was just having them do pause squats exactly. Actually, exactly. To death. <laughs> exactly. Um, and the fact that those are <laughs> those are loaded at the end range it just seemed to stick better and now i'm spending my time working on getting them stronger for their sport as opposed to have them laying down on the ground um doing a lot of mobility stuff Mm -hmm. um, I used to do a lot of it myself too before like I had my specific three or four things I would do before I squatted and benched and deadlift now literally I do a little warm up my hips with some bodyweight squats and I'll do some torso rotations with that it takes about 30 seconds to do that and then I take the empty bar 20 times Same. and then I take a plate yep. a few sets of five and then Shiko writes out all my warm so 50% 60% 70% are already written out so like with my athletes, I write out their warm-ups the same way. So everything from 
up is recording their sheets. I don't give a shit what they do if they feel it helps. Like Carrie literally does, it looks like an '80s aerobic video to warm up. There are <laughs> arm circles and toe touches, and like if she if she makes fantastic. that into an acronym, now if she makes that into an acronym, she can make money off of it. Right, so exactly, that's it. exactly. And I'm not gonna tell her because I do think there's some like mental prep that goes yeah. behind some of this stuff. And, and of course, and I yeah. get, I get, I get a part of that. Um, one of the biggest, I think, topics. This wasn't even on the questions that I sent you, so Ooh, curveball. We'll, add it, curveball. We'll, we'll add this in, is breathing seems to be a big, oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> a big topic in the fitness industry. Even in the strength sports, it has trickled down where, mm-hmm. you know, if your diaphragm is not acting appropriately, you can't um, protect your spine, and there's all these energy leaks coming through. Yeah. How big of a role do you feel breathing plays in all of this stuff? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this goes back to, again, like, terminology and, like, how are we defining things? Like, you know, what when, we, when you tell someone something, like, every word that comes, it's hard, but every word that comes out of your mouth and you tell your athlete or your patient something, you better choose those words wisely because you don't know what they're going to latch on to. And you might not think it's a big deal, and you might just say... I think your diaphragm doesn't work and we need to get it better so that you can lift without pain and make your spine more stable. They walk away thinking, I don't know how to breathe and my spine's unstable. The hell does that mean? You know, and then they're hyper-focused on something that I don't think we have any good evidence for. Um, and so it like that, that's the stuff, that's the crux of it, I think, is like you really need to be choosing our words wisely. And it's, it's tough because like I, it's tough to have these conversations with all different people in the fitness and rehab world because then they're like, oh, what, what, we gotta, what, we gotta tiptoe around everything? I'm, no, I just think we need to be very straight with our athletes and our clients. And with breathing, I tell people, there's just like everything, there's a, probably a right place and a wrong time to do certain strategies. So do you need to be doing a Max Valsalva breathing brace when you're picking up the pen you dropped on the floor probably not <laughs> how sore your hamstrings are yeah that depends the pen yeah <laughs> that's how far the floor is from your hand um but you know should you learn how to do that when you're squatting under max load yeah but that it, it all comes down to again like the task at hand like hey we know that wearing a weightlifting belt and breathing into it reduces compression on the spine you know and it makes you lift heavier weights do you want to lift heavier weights Yes, hopefully it's the answer. Yeah, yeah. And uh, all right, cool. Let's learn that. Um, and then any any time else during the day, just just live your life. <laughs> you know, your body's gonna figure out how to breathe. I think. I hope. Right. As long as you don't have any like underlying conditions. I mean, any, it, any paralysis or anything. If it didn't figure it out, we probably wouldn't still be here. And, and you know, going back to the hyper focus thing, if your goal is to lift max weight on the platform and you're hyper-focused on breathing, that's how you're going to get fucked up. Oh, yeah. Like, you need to be thinking, like, core stability, to use that stupid term, is literally (laughs) a ground-up thing. It's from your feet all the way up to the top of your goddamn head. Yeah. Like, you know, there there was a Russian study that actually showed that if you fill your lungs three-quarters of the way full and hold it for short durations, you get better power output. So with my lifters, we focus on, we rebreathe every rep because of that short duration. It's just a quick huff of air into the belly. We don't want to see the chest rise. Um, 
a lot of this is for performance reasons. Like if the chest rises, we've now turned a low bar squat into a little bit higher bar position. The thoracic extensor moment arms are now increased. So it kind of defeats the purpose of a low bar squat. Mm -hmm. But never once has, you know, Shiko said something about how important my breathing is. It's my chest position, the bar position, my knee position, like literally stabilizing underneath a barbell is a total body endeavor yeah and if you want to protect your back and in a lot of cases too these you know when they're like you know you need to keep your your rib packed down like if you look at any russian powerlifter elite level powerlifter they're going to have a little bit higher of a rib position most weightlifters squat with a higher rib position but their back muscles are extended and tight so it actually gives those passive and active tissues a little bit better leverage Mm -hmm. to protect the back they're just different ways of doing things I love the argument that, oh, if your ribs down, it protects your back more. And then they push their ass as far away from the back as possible, which then just puts more on the lower back. Um, yeah. When you're talking biomechanics. Like, it is a, it's not wrong to do it that way. It's just different. And you can't be telling people that if you do something, it's going to lead to you having decreased performance and injury risk. Because the second you put that perception in them, I think you do. You increase the hyper-focus of doing one task when it requires... The whole body to do a task instead of just one area yeah and you can run into a lot of a lot of issues there pretty Performance much yeah. and injury risk. i mean if anyone's ever worked with like any performing artist any dancer or anyone in that region they're coming in all elevated and their ribs are flaring out all over the place poking you in the eye but you know i'm not gonna like that's not this is who they are that's that's what their function has dictated their structure and the adaption of the human body is pretty amazing it's amazing if you change that structure and you try to fix their posture you just made them a less better athlete probably and that is not our job whatsoever (laughs) exactly and like it still all comes back to specificity so you know if you get your feet up on the wall lying on your back and you're just practicing filling your diaphragm with air it doesn't mean you're going to be able to do it underneath a barbell yeah um and one of the other things is you know when you are doing all these like passive and active mobility drills mm-hmm. like the joints the angles and the speeds they the forces the angles and the speeds all have to be similar to the task at hand yeah so if you're doing these unloaded passive stretches it doesn't mean you're going to be able to actively control that tissue in a coordinated fashion for a specific task yeah so you know if you don't have proper mobility underneath a barbell well use the right weights the right volumes and the right exercises that help you build that neuromuscular coordination to improve your technique under the barbell and guess what happens as you do more the appropriate levels of volume and then you sleep and you recover <laughs> your tissues get stronger yeah, and they become that. more yep. hand quotes again stable yes like you yes. know it's just that it's just it's typical skill development like we lose the skill of athletic movements because we sit down all day let's you know we we just get stuck in these in these crappy positions i guess um but it's not your desk job's not leading to your pain you know your knees caving in on a squat, your rib position, they're not leading to your pain. The, you know, the mechanics are not leading to your pain. For me as a coach, 99 out of 100 times when somebody comes in front of me and they're in pain, it's because of two reasons. One, they're doing too much volume and intensity. And two, they're not exploring movement like, like Mike was saying earlier. They're just doing the specific competition lifts and that's it. Yeah. And they're not, you know, analyzing the sport and realizing that, you know, maybe I'm stuck in these positions. I need to kind of do some other things just to stay healthy. Yeah, we have, you know, if anyone's really interested in that, that work, the work uh, volume and intensity you just mentioned, like Tim Gabbett, 
Um, I think he's English. Maybe he's Australian. Hope Tim Gabbett is listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt he is. Um, he's, been, he's been doing great work on uh, measuring workload capacity and how that's an injury risk. Now he's doing it in um, rugby and soccer players, and I wouldn't use the same data to apply it to a powerlifter, but you know that, that gives us like so much power and so much simplicity in a very complex situation. You know, anyone who comes to see me, I ask them, all right, tell me about the last, like, three months of your life. Like, everything. I want to know, like, training, stress, work, sleep, nutrition. Give me a good idea of, like, any major changes that's been going on. And it could be, it could not even realize it. It could be very subtle, but those sharp increases or decreases in workload have an actual increased uh, likelihood of injury risk. And it has nothing to do with, you know, your score on the hurdles hurdle step you know right and like well one of the things too is like your tissues just take longer to recover than say like your nervous system it's yeah. just their recovery curve longer no. so you're creating micro trauma when you're doing physical activity and if you just continue to do it without taking the appropriate recovery steps whether it's deloads or lighter days yeah. or easing into stuff that micro trauma just builds up till your body's like you're gonna take a break whether you like it or not and you know when we're talking about volumes it's not always just what you're doing in the gym so like nick unloads airplanes luggage from airplanes that volume <laughs> plays a role into what he's capable of lifting in the gym it still starts to For fill sure. that need yeah. um you know your body has no idea it can't it can't tell the difference between you unloading a luggage and you deadlifting right it's the same thing exactly yeah. so like you know if you're walking down the street with a heavy backpack which is what I do to come to work every day. Good. You know, it, it adds into your volume. Like, Good. I do think there are some recovery aspects because I am moving around and I'm not stuck sitting down all day long. And, I, you know, but it still can add up over time. And there are times where I can see it's adding up. So I'm going to start driving, you know, I drive to work for a couple of days and just and take a little bit of a break and back off. Yeah. Um, but, you know, overall, when you experience pain, um, it's not the end of the world. When you're warming up uh, or... You know, keep in mind that your mobility drills and your warm-ups need to be specific to the task. And if they're not, you're wasting your time. Like my job as a strength coach and to get athletes to lift their biggest totals on the platform, I need to spend my time gearing them towards that. If they're fucked up, if they are in pain and they can't get into the right positions, that's what I'm sending them to you. Good. Perfect. <laughs> uh, so, Mike, some closing thoughts. Tell people where they can find you. Uh, you mentioned you were speaking... I am. On Friday, is there going to be like, a, are they going to record it or anything? I don't know, actually. I think it's a, I think it's a closed private event. No, <laughs> it's actually all about dancer rehab and something I have a little bit of experience with, not a lot of experience. But um, I would say, for closing thoughts, um, always find, I would say for anyone who's in pain or even if someone is trying to find like optimal performance, find the control within you. I would say the more you can rely on yourself, um, choosing and affecting the factors rather than some outside implement or some outside force trying to change you you're always gonna have a better association with it if you can change it within yourself and that sounds like really like kind of you know out there and kind of like wishy-washy but it makes a lot of sense it makes a lot of sense so you know you're you're in control you're you know you're the most powerful force that you can um change and uh if you want to i don't I used to have a blog. Now I just have like a 
piss poor Instagram that you can follow me at. <laughs> Every now and then I'll like post up an article. So if you want to follow me, <laughs> michaelamato.dpt. Um, All right. And uh, yeah, if you're in the Boston area, I work uh, right in the mall. Joint right Ventures in the Prudential. Right by the Gucci store. <laughs> no, actually right across from the Rolex store. Oh, even better. <laughs> even better. <laughs> All right. So if you want to follow me, KWCAN on Instagram, Precision Power Lifting Systems. And of course, give TPS Malden a follow. That's where we are here. Um, signing off till the next one. Bye. Thanks, guys.